I'm excited about this message, Singing in Babylon. We're going to be looking at some verses from Daniel chapter 1 and then drawing some principles from the entire book of Daniel. So let's jump right in and look at the scriptures together. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. I'm delighted to be with you at Kensington Temple this evening, and one of the reasons for that, quite frankly, is that I am thrilled to arrive anywhere safely because I'm one of those sad men. Invariably, when I go out on a car journey, I get lost. And this is despite all kinds of technological assistance because I've got Google Maps in my phone. My wife, Kay, has the voice of an Australian surfer with a six-pack in the Maps section of her phone. And yet, despite all this help, we are still frequently lost. We've got a good marriage, but we occasionally experience navigational tension. Some of you can really relate to that, I'm sure. Now, I am one of those men who is willing to concede a defeat and, and pull over and ask a passing pedestrian for some directions. But then when they're telling me the directions, I'm sad to confess I get really bored with listening and, and they're telling me turn left, second right at the lights and inwardly I, I'm, I'm thinking this is, this is really numbing right now. I'd really rather be lost. I am not that great at listening to directions and I'm not very good with instructions either. Recently we bought a new TV and I had to put it together with its stand and so I asked the salesperson, this young lad who was about nine years old and apparently a technological genius, I said, look, I'm not really that great with this stuff. Do you think I'll be able to put this thing together? And he smiled, an overly confident smile, and said, sir, any idiot could put this together. I, I'm gonna, I think I'm going to track him down and tell him that I'm not just any idiot because it was a disaster. There was much unchristian muttering in our house. If only I just followed the directions. There is instruction. There are directions in the book of Daniel. But often we only focus on the key stories, the fiery furnace, the lion's den, and we'll be touching on those stories tonight. Or we view Daniel as some kind of eschatological jigsaw, a puzzle that we've got to figure out that points to the end times, to the second coming of Jesus. And there is much material about that. But let me say right away, I believe that in the book of Daniel, there is help for us in the here and now, especially in the current season in which we find ourselves. 
as a local church leader, as a pastor, as part of Timberline Church in Fort Collins, Colorado, I am well aware of the challenges that many of us are facing right now. Uncertainty, uncertainty about employment, about our businesses, about what's going to be happening to the economy, health concerns, grief that many are struggling with. Here in the book of Daniel, there is help for us in hard times. It was Eugene Peterson who said, I've never understood why Daniel, who for so long held a prominent position in the biblical pantheon of the wise, in our times became marginalized into a children's song, Dare to be a Daniel, and depersonalized into a puzzle piece in a scenario for the end times. In this book, there is instruction, there are directions on how to live in the real world and embrace life as it is right now. It is the story of exile, a story that unfolded 2,600 years ago as God's people experienced judgment. Now imagine, imagine if there'd been newspapers around at the time, what the headlines might have been. They were warned, the nation was warned by the prophet Jeremiah that judgment was coming, but they didn't listen. They ignored those warnings and found themselves under attack from the approaching Babylonian army. The city of Jerusalem was under siege for a number of months, and then at last, Jerusalem fell, many people died, the temple was plundered, and some of the brightest and the best members of the royal family, nobility, some of them were deported, uprooted from their homes, and taken off to Babylon, including Daniel and some of his friends. Let's just stop and think about what that must have felt like. These were young men. The Hebrew word used to describe them is yeladim, which literally means lads. We know from historians that the Babylonians had an educational program that began at age 14, which is why most commentators believe that Daniel and his pals would have been between the ages of 12 and 18 at the most. And now, now they're taken away from their beloved Jerusalem, from the promised land. They're taken away from the temple, the, the centerpiece of their faith. They're, they're uprooted, taken away from the feasts and festivals, which confirmed their faith as the covenant people of God. And they are taken into the most intimidating situation, Babylon, the biggest and most beautiful city of the day, built on both sides of the river Euphrates with a massive double fortified wall. The city was 200 miles square. The walls of the city, 80 feet thick, 320 feet high. Imagine that. Imagine walking in through the gate and seeing the ziggurat, a temple dedicated to the Babylonian idol Marduk. It soared 299 feet high, an amazing feat of engineering, a skyscraper of its day. And then, of course, there were the hanging gardens of Babylon found in Nebuchadnezzar's palace, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Here's the thing. The Babylonians, they had all the power. They had all the money. They had the military might. But there was a 
spiritual element to the defeat of God's people as well. Because in those ancient days, it was believed that if your nation was defeated by another nation, it's because their God was stronger than your God. Did you notice from our reading how the narrative explains very carefully that Nebuchadnezzar plundered the temple of the Lord? And it wasn't just about lining his pockets. He put that plunder in the temple of his God, in the storehouse of his God. The emphasis is on the spiritual plundering of the people of God. They were in exile. And here's the thing. Surely so are we. We are in exile. There's a sense in which we live in Babylon. That's true for the whole of humanity because we were created, we were made to live in relationship with God, our original home, the Garden of Eden. But now we are exiles from that garden, deported, banished, placed in exile because of sin and rebellion. The whole of humanity, in a sense, is in exile. There's an opportunity to come home to God in Christ, but humanity's general condition is one of exile. And then all Christians in every age at all times are exiles. In 1 Peter, a letter which begins with Peter addressing his readers as exiles and strangers, in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11, we read, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. And the Apostle Paul picks up that exilic theme writing to the church in Philippi, which was a Roman colony and how proud the Philippians were of their Roman citizenship. And Paul reminds them in the third chapter, our citizenship is in heaven. <clears throat> you see, as followers of Jesus, we're no longer in the garden of Genesis. We are not yet in the garden of Revelation. We, we are exiles. And isn't it also true that increasingly we feel that sense of displacement, alienation, exile in our culture? No longer is the Christian voice the majority voice. We find ourselves in a postmodern culture. Postmodernism is where there is no core story to, uh, to underline the way in which we should live. And when you lose the story, you lose the plot. We find ourselves challenged by liberal fundamentalism, where you can believe anything you like as long as you don't dare step out of line with the liberal consensus, who, waving the flag of tolerance, will not tolerate voices that don't agree with the consensus. We can feel a sense of powerlessness. And some Christians respond to this with separatism. Let's just get away from the big bad world. Let's just withdraw into everything Christian. Others can slide into syncretism where we just conform. We become like the world around us. We will need to learn. We need to learn how to live in exile. Kenneth Leach says, as Christians of the 21st century, we are exiles, strangers and pilgrims, aliens in a strange land. We will need to learn the strategies of survival and to sing the songs of Zion in the midst of Babylon. The psalmist asks a poignant question in Psalm 137 and verse 4. How can we sing the songs of the Lord 
while in a foreign land. How can we sing the song of the Lord at this moment in history and not just survive this season, but actually thrive in this most challenging time that we're still navigating? Well, here's the first thing. We learn from the book of Daniel that we need to face reality, face reality. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men. These young men were now having to embrace a second choice life. They would have never chosen to actually be deported to Babylon, Jerusalem, was their home. We all want choices. And we can buy the idea that generally speaking, we can expect to get our first choice in life. In fact, sometimes we, we tell our children, if you dream it, you can do it, which frankly is not true because there are limits on all of us. But I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, I hear someone say. But let's remember that when Paul said that, he was experiencing two years of personal lockdown under house arrest in Rome. And when he talks about doing everything, he's not saying he can do anything. He can do that for which Christ strengthens him. We don't always get exactly what we want. And for Daniel, the rest of his life, as I think I've mentioned, was spent in lockdown for most of us in the trivial everyday matters of life, we experience junctions between first and second choices all the time. We decide to go out to our favorite restaurant, which helpfully um, is open and there's a table available. First choice. Uh, marvelous. Um, and uh, we drive there and as we get out of the car, we break a nail after an expensive manicure. I hate it when that happens. Second choice and we have a wonderful meal, first choice, then we have to drive home on the M25 where there are roadworks planned for the next 400 years, second choice. We get home, there's a parking space outside the house, first choice, and we reverse back into that parking space and nudge the car from the neighbor next door, a car that has a fish on the back of it, second choice. In trivial matters, first and second choices intersect all the time. But there are other seasons when we find ourselves at a far more tragic level in second choice. And I've mentioned perhaps some of those things earlier, sickness, bereavement, unemployment, breakdown of relationships too. Let's face the reality that life invo involves episodes and seasons of second choice living. Jesus said in John 16 verse 33, in this world, you will have trouble. Now, I know for sure that's not my favorite verse, even though Jesus went on to say, take heart because I've overcome the world. But in this world, you will have trouble. I've not got that as a refrigerator magnet on my Christian refrigerator. It, it's not my favorite, but it is the truth. Now, why is it important to understand that? If we don't get that, we could end up being disappointed with God when second choice living arrives upset with him because he didn't give us what he never promised to give us in the first place. Let's face reality. Secondly, let's affirm our identity in Christ. 
affirm our identity. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Daniel 1, verse 7. Most of us are familiar with Victor Hugo's classic story set in France in the 1820s, Les Miserables. And uh, I've been to see the stage musical three times and sobbed like a baby three times. It's a very powerful story, a powerful story of grace as uh, Jean Valjean is shown grace by a kindly clergyman that he stole from. But he is also bullied by his former captor, Javet. This prison guard and police inspector, he never calls Valjean by his name. He insists on simply referring to him by his prison number, 24601. He's saying, you're nobody, you're nothing. You don't matter, you don't count. You are just a number. When Daniel and his friends arrived in Babylon, one of the first things that happened is that they lost their names. The name Daniel means Elohim, one of the Hebrew names for God. Elohim is my judge. The new name, Belteshazzar, means may Bel protect his life. Bel was one of the Babylonian so-called gods. Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. Yahweh, the personal name for the God of the Bible. Shadrach means Akko is exalted. And Akku is another Babylonian god. Mishael means who is what Elohim is, while Meshach means who is what Aku is. And so these names were changed, separating these Hebrew boys from their identity in their God and rather placing them, locating them under the shadow of an identity linked with Babylonian gods. Remember, it was the, the Babylonians who in building that tower, they said in Genesis 11:4, we will make a name for ourselves. And now they are making new names for Daniel and his friends. Their identity is under threat. And our prophetic identity can be eroded as well. In fact, it can be under direct attack. Remember in Luke chapter three, when Jesus hears the affirmation of the father celebrating him, this is my beloved son. I am pleased with him. And then immediately that identity is affirmed in Luke chapter four in the wilderness onslaught. It is undermined if you are the son of God. God says, this is who you are. The father says to his son, who do you think you are? The enemy says to Jesus. If that is true, if that happened in the experience of Jesus, that can happen to us as well. Wherever you're watching this from this evening, why don't you join me in affirming our prophetic identity together? We are people. We are the people of God. We are in Christ. We are followers of Jesus. We stand firm on the evil day, as Paul said to the Ephesians. And having done all, we stand and our identity is part of that standing. Thirdly, let's have faith that is not dependent on outcomes. It's the fiery furnace story where Nebuchadnezzar has set up that idol. And we read that Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego replied to the king, if we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. This image, 
90 feet high, nine feet wide, bowed down to it. And these young men facing a horrifying death. I mean, this is not a children's story. It's a horror story. They stand firm, respectfully, but confidently in faith. In fact, the Hebrew of their statement means literally, he is infinitely able to rescue us. They had faith in the greatness, the majesty, the bigness of God, his ability to deliver them. But then they made one of the most remarkable statements in scripture. They then say, but even if he does not, we want you to know we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Whatever the outcome, they were determined to be faithful to God. Pastor George Ross has said, I have served in the ministry 31 years, and I have come to understand that there are two kinds of faith. One says, if everything goes well, if my life is prosperous, if I'm happy, if nobody I love dies, and if I'm successful, then I will believe in God, say my prayers, go to church, give what I can afford. The other says, though, though the cause of evil prosper, though I sweat in Gethsemane, though I must drink my cup at Calvary, nevertheless, precisely then I will trust the Lord who made me. So Job cries, though he slay me, yet but I trust him. We can have if faith, or we can have though faith. I've been in pastoral ministry now for over four decades, and I have watched some of the greatest heroes of faith who utterly believe, for example, that God is able to heal them. But they have wrestled with long-term debilitating illness, and they have done so not only with faith, but with faithfulness. They have not gambled their commitment to God on a specific outcome. And it might be in tuning in to our time together this evening that you find yourself edging towards an if faith and you're upset and you're disappointed, maybe even angry with God. And he can cope with that if in doubt, read the book of Jonah. There's plenty of anger, not just at life, but at God found in his story. God calls us not to have an if faith, but a though faith. And that's easy to talk about. And my prayer for you, even as you watch this, is that God's strength and grace will be the lifter up of your head and enable you to say, though, whatever happens, I'm going to trust God. Fourthly, let's know that we're a choir, not just scattered soloists. We're a choir. We read in Daniel 2, Daniel facing some challenges. It says, Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. Daniel didn't just have friends. He had a supportive, prayerful community that he had invested in, invested himself in. So when challenges came, he was able to call upon them. Kay and I have been thinking about that generally recently, thinking about who our friends are, who's in our crew, if you like, for the coming decades. Well, we hope it's decades. Jesus had Peter, James, and John, that, that inner circle of friends that were treated to experiences that the others were, were not able to participate in. 
he had that inner circle to be with him there in the garden of Gethsemane. Yes, they fell asleep. They let him down, but he built that circle. Who are we going to call when life is tough? And then let's think specifically beyond general friendship. Let's celebrate the truth of the local church throughout these decades of ministry. The local church has been a passion of mine because I still believe that the local church is the hope of the world. And we need each other. We need to be committed to each other if we are to thrive in Babylon. Stanley Hiawas says this, to be resident but alien is a formula for loneliness that few of us can sustain. Indeed, it's almost impossible to minister alone because our loneliness can quickly, too quickly turn into self-righteousness or self-hate. Christians can survive only by supporting one another through the countless small acts through which we tell each other we are not alone, that God is with us. Friendship is not, therefore, accidental to the Christian life. Let me make a statement that might sound a little controversial. I'd like to invite you to stop attending Kensington Temple. Now, as you hear me say that, you might think, what on earth is this man talking about? I believe we need to go beyond attendance, whether it be in person or virtually. Kay and I have got children and grandchildren. We don't attend our family. We think about them all the time. We pray for them. They're in our hearts. They're on our minds. We don't attend our family. They are grafted into us. And I want to invite us during this season to put our roots down deeper into local church, in commitment, in giving, in participation, in worshiping how and when, whenever we're of, uh, able to do that, again, in person or virtually. In this season... When the wind is blowing, that's when we need to have our roots going down deep. And as we celebrate in worship and share in small groups and pray and reflect on the truth of Scripture, and as we affirm together that Christ is Lord, the only way, and we affirm that he is ours and that we are his, we remember who he is, we remember who we are, we remember whose we are, community, being part of the choir, not an isolated soloist. That's the way forward for us as we find ourselves in exile. And then let me come back to that point I made earlier about friendship. It might be a really good thing to consider who's in your crew. Who is it that you are really investing in and building with for the seasons to come? Well, here's the last thing, and that is that we see the Son of Man in glory by faith. You see, in exile, Daniel needed hope. And hope came not with some kind of hollow slogan, don't worry, be happy, but rather hope came with a revelation of the Son of Man, the risen Christ. Daniel chapter 7, in my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that would never be destroyed. We need to affirm the truth that Christ is coming again. Perhaps we've lost some of that. Certainly the wider church 
subjected to second coming madness three or four decades ago, where people wrote endless books identifying various political characters as being participants in the second coming drama and setting dates and times for Jesus' coming, completely contrary to all that scripture says. And like pendulums, we swung away from that madness and Many of us have gone just a little bit quiet about the second coming of Jesus. We need to affirm that there is more than what we currently see, more than what we currently live in. Daniel knew that Babylon was temporary and Nebuchadnezzar and the other kings were temporary. Only his God and his kingdom were eternal. He knew that God was the God of wisdom, the God of power, the God who changed times and seasons, the God who knew, to quote Daniel, who knew what was in the darkness. At this time, let's remind ourselves that there is a beautiful, glorious future ahead. The book of Revelation is given to us to demonstrate that powerful truth. We read there, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. In these challenging times when perhaps many of us have lived closer to the reality of death than ever before when our headlines have been filled with news of casualties, of death statistics, of people suffering from the COVID uh, disease. It's been very, very close to us. And we become a little like the early Christians who live very close to death for much of the time. But we affirm, we affirm that Christ is bigger than life or death, that he has beaten death. And in his resurrection, we will in Christ know life eternal, which is not just about life going on endlessly, but it's about life in endless relationship with him. You see, there is another lion in the Bible. We read again in the book of Revelation, then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumph. Daniel, who knew all about lions in his lion's den experienced, encountered the lion of Judah, the risen Christ, the son of man. Hope was given to him in his time of exile.